You're listening to Stealing from Wizards, Volume 2, Burglary, by R.A. Consul. Chapter 18, Strays in High Places Things had changed around the lodge during Kuro's aromatic exile. Mag Singh was trying on new hairstyles and first names, Sean and Gregory sat together all the time instead of with their roommates, and Marie appeared to have been replaced by a winged unicorn. It was Charlie's constant companion regardless of whether the room was big enough to fit the familiar. If it didn't fit through a door, Charlie would unsummon it and bring it back on the other side. It wasn't terribly surprising. Lots of Crow's classmates were equally excited about their familiars. Arthur had a different one out at every meal, and Sean's hummingbird was always buzzing about. The only real difference with Charlie's was that it was much harder to ignore. It was huge and beautiful. When it stretched its wings, they touched either side of the dining hall. Nearly everyone was jealous of it, and those that weren't were lying. She had been forbidden from riding it without a proper saddle for safety reasons, but she wasn't upset about that. She could just let it fly around, unsummon it, and enjoy everything it had experienced. She spent her free time watching it soar over the island, then sucking up the memories. Kuro wondered at Marie's absence at dinner, though. When he asked, Charlie rolled her eyes and flung her arms in the air. She's being impossible, she said. She spends all her time looking for bilious tree frogs and barely talks to me. She takes her food with her and comes home late, and I hardly see her except in class. And she's always grumpy about Henrietta taking up too much space. That's my familiar, Henrietta. Ms. McCutcheon says it's unseemly to name a familiar because it's part of you, like naming your right hand. So I just named my hands, too. This is Lefty, and this is Steve. She held up her hands for Kuro to see. She had drawn name tags on them. Maybe we should help her, Kuro suggested. She's been searching for ages, and it's due before solstice break. We offered, said Arthur. She said she wants to do it herself. She's being ridiculous, added Charlie. I helped you, and you helped Arthur, and Arthur helped me. It would have been way harder to catch the larvae if Arthur hadn't been there to swing a bat at every adult moose fly. You should have seen them, Crow. Big as a melon with antlers like Steve and Lefty. Hard to collect their larvae with them buzzing around and charging at you. But we did it. Got more than a dozen fresh ones. They look like wriggly parsnips. Arthur, who was interested in forgetting the experience, changed the subject. Kuro, I have a question for you, he said as he pulled a notebook from his bag. Did you hear about the latest burglary? Oh yeah, replied Kuro, recalling his own terrible evening. Azalea and your sister nearly murdered me. Moira wouldn't do that, said Arthur flatly. She knows we're friends. I'll let her know you said so, said Kuro. I compiled a list, said Arthur, ignoring Kuro's sarcasm. He opened his notebook and presented three pages of names and animals. It's almost complete. Kuro scanned the pages. It looked like Arthur had every student and teacher at the school paired with their familiar. How did you do this? Arthur's been interrogating everyone at the lodge about their classmates' familiars, said Charlie enthusiastically. It's great! He's just like a real detective. We should get him a hat. Real detectives always have cool hats. Arthur grew a couple of inches from the praise. I'm only missing a few, he said, but nothing fits our suspect. Everything is too big to hide, too small to steal stuff or wouldn't be able to open doors or windows. Does anybody have a raccoon familiar? Kuro asked as he looked through the list. 
Why? asked Arthur, quickly grabbing his notes back and flipping to a clean page. Do you have a reason to suspect a raccoon was involved? Arthur sounded so much like a hound that Kuro was uncomfortable answering. I saw a raccoon yesterday that was acting weird, he sputtered. And a raccoon could make that kind of mess? Kuro'd had regular disagreements with raccoons and detritus, fighting over bins with freshly discarded food and competing for good hiding places. Kuro usually lost those fights. Weird in what way? Arthur was vigorously making notes. It was watching me from the woods. And where were you when this happened? Kuro didn't like being interrogated, even by his friend. He started to get evasive out of instinct. Near the winter quarter. And what were you doing there? Practicing summoning my familiar, Kuro lied. It felt gross coming out of his mouth. He was a bad liar and felt terrible for deceiving his friend, but he wasn't sure he should tell Arthur about his working with Bindle, especially with an earshot of other Luton. Bindle might be breaking rules by being there. He wasn't breaking his promises, but that was only because he thought Kuro was a monster. Others might not think the same way. Also, there was a good chance everything Arthur wrote down would go straight to his father, and Kuro had to protect Luton. He'd promised. Arthur didn't appear to detect the lie, though. Instead, he flipped to his list of names and found a blank space beside the name Kuro Hayashi. And what is your familiar? Why is my name on that list? asked Kuro. Do you suspect me? It's always the detail you overlook that ends up mattering most. Arthur replied without noticing the hurt in Kuro's demand. It sounded like he was quoting his father. Charlie rescued the conversation from descending further into unpleasantness. You know, I've seen a raccoon acting weird too. She had her head cocked and her eyes scrunched most of the way closed. It looked like she was trying to see something hidden in her own brain. Her Henrietta did. It was looking at her from under a bush in the middle of the day. That's really strange for a raccoon. They usually only come out at night. Arthur started a new page with raccoon, question mark, written in large letters at the top. He then concluded the official investigation meeting by handing out assignments with instructions to burn them after reading. Kuro hadn't been aware he was in a meeting. He'd mistaken it for dinner with friends. Neither did he remember agreeing to be part of an official investigation. But Charlie and Arthur were enjoying themselves so much that he didn't want to fight it. What does he have you doing? Kuro asked Charlie as he threw his instructions in the fireplace. Surveillance, she replied proudly. I'm going to have Henrietta fly over the island watching for suspicious behavior. Isn't that what you'd be doing anyway? Asked Kuro. Of course, agreed Charlie. But this way it feels like I'm solving a mystery while I lie around watching her fly. What does he want you to do? He wants me to spy on Mr. Wittershins. Kuro shook his head at the silliness of it. Apparently nobody knows what his familiar is. Charlie nodded at the wisdom of the assignment. He is very mysterious. I always thought he acted strange. He's too nice and nervous and he dresses funny like he's hiding something. Kuro tried to imagine Wittershins as a thief. It was hard to do. He was the least suspicious person Kuro could imagine. He was earnest, kind, and dull. He got excited about the dates of historical events and was too clumsy and awkward to sneak anywhere. He dropped his chalk at least twice a class, and all his shoes had scuff marks on it for where he'd tripped over his own feet. If he was a thief, then he'd put a lot of effort into pretending to be a teacher. Nonetheless, the idea kept invading his thoughts as he sat through class the next day. Was he too innocent? Was it all an act? 
He'd only started teaching at the school the year before. Could it all be for show and he was secretly a criminal mastermind? It was hard to fight those unwelcome ideas because they were so much more interesting than what the rest of his brain was being subjected to. Mr. Wittershins had the unhappy duty of describing the current lines of succession for the three courts, and doing so required drawing a huge web of names joined by arrows. Some of Kuro's classmates were on it. Evelyn was at a nexus of the webs, being 12th in line for the Akkadian throne, 30th in line for Alfheim, and in the top 50 possible queens of Tirnanog. That information garnered praise and admiration from the class, but Wittershins was unmoved by it. He was excited, however, by the fact that Freya Mirmerdotter was 42nd in line for the crown of Elfheim, though it wasn't at all clear why. On a normal day, Kuro would have dismissed that as an innocent peculiarity. But now that he'd been infected by Arthur's suggestions, it seemed suspicious. It wasn't sinister, but a part of his mind was trying to find a way to make it so. When the teacher hit his head on his desk while bending to pick up a piece of chalk he'd dropped, instead of seeming comical, his clumsiness appeared artificial. Crow found he couldn't help but follow the teacher after school. Not because he truly suspected Wittershins, but because he needed to prove to himself how silly the whole thing was. Kuro waited around outside the school for Wittershins to leave at the end of the day. He emerged nearly an hour after classes had ended, carrying a pile of papers and accompanied by Mr. Oganov. Kuro knew of two ways to follow people. The first was to avoid being seen. That was what people expected of thieves, creeping through the shadows, silent and invisible. It worked well enough when slipping through unlocked windows in the dead of night, but was a lousy method for picking pockets. His preferred technique was to go unnoticed rather than unseen. All he needed to do was blend into the background, look like he belonged, and move with the flow. So long as he did not draw attention to himself, he wouldn't be remembered even if his target looked right at him. This was made somewhat harder by the fact that Mr. Wittershins knew who Kuro was, but at the same time, Kuro really did belong there. His school uniform gave him permission to wander the grounds unquestioned and made him indistinct from the hundreds of other children. All he had to do was move with confidence that he was going somewhere he was supposed to be and disinterest in anyone around him, and he would be unworthy of notice. If Kuro was good at anything, it was being unworthy of notice. The two teachers chatted lopsidedly as they strolled toward the center of the island. Wittershins was a tall, quiet man, while Oganov was a short, loud one. And so, at any distance, it sounded as though Oganov was having a conversation with himself. Quite well, thank you, Oganov boomed in response to a soft greeting from Wittershins. The repairs were pretty easy today, not a single broken pane of glass. Oh, I don't imagine he has any idea. Oganov continued after some unheard commentary from Wittershins. And that's probably for the best. Don't want him to worry about it. Besides, I take it as a personal challenge to keep that room in working condition. It's not the first time a student has had trouble keeping their magic contained. Every time I'm sure it's warded and reinforced in every possible way, they come up with some new way to cause damage. Another pause as Wittershins spoke. No, I haven't the faintest idea how he's doing it. It's quite remarkable, really, Oganov answered the unheard question. Another contribution from Mr. Wittershins made the evocations teacher burst out laughing. A prodigy! Oh, oh my goodness, no, 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 no. Quite the opposite, sadly. 
I've never seen anyone work so hard to be so bad. <laughs> well, yes, he's better than you, but it's not a fair contest, is it? Kuro had been actively ignoring the conversation as best he could. It was easier to look uninteresting if he were uninterested. But that last comment caught Kuro's attention. It sounded like Oganov just accused Wittershins of being worse at evocations than a student. It was an odd thing to say to a teacher. When the pair reached the base of the granite pillar at the center of the island, Oganov removed his cape with a flourish and laid it on the path. Both teachers stepped onto it, but Wittershins quickly sat down and crossed his legs, clutching his sheaf of papers close to his chest while Oganov stood casually. The enchanted cape went stiff and carried them both up to the plateau and the teacher's residence. It was another unremarkable moment that he would have ignored on any other day but the oddities were starting to accumulate and form a picture. Kuro spent the rest of the week watching Wittershins like a hawk. The more he watched, the more his suspicions grew into a theory, and then a certainty. The teacher always wrote by hand. He would walk across a classroom to fetch a book. He'd abandoned a half-finished cup of coffee after it went cold. Even when the class got unruly beyond his control, all he would do was try to raise his voice over the noise of the class. These were all entirely ordinary things to do. They had never seemed strange until Kuro started looking out for them. But after a week, he was certain. Kuro shared his discovery with his friends over dinner that Friday. I know why nobody knows what Mr. Wittershin's familiar is, Kuro said, attempting to copy how Charlie would leave them hanging in suspense when telling stories. Charlie leaned over the table as if being a foot closer to Kuro would get the information that much sooner. Arthur whipped out his investigation notebook and flipped to find the page he dedicated to Wittershins. Henrietta snorted and surrounded the crew with her wings to keep the conversation private. And Marie was nowhere to be seen. He's a stray, Kuro whispered. Charlie spouted a continuous stream of exclamations of shock and disbelief, while the left side of Arthur's face drooped in confusion. He never does any magic at all, explained Kuro. Think about it. Have you ever seen him do anything even a little bit magic? But he's a teacher, said Charlie, as if that were all the evidence she could possibly need to disprove the idea. Kuro pointed out a small hole in her argument. He doesn't teach magic. But how does he expect to keep that kind of thing a secret? She rebutted. Someone's bound to find out. I don't think he's hiding it, said Kuro. I think we just didn't notice. Mademoiselle Sin and Miss Frigger don't do much magic either. They don't need to for their subjects, but even they don't bend over to pick up the chalk when it breaks or walk across the room to close a door. Charlie continued to huff and sputter, trying to find some reason that Kuro could be wrong. It wasn't that she disputed his facts. She was just having trouble coming to terms with the idea. Arthur, however, was much faster to accept the notion. He sighed with resignation and put a line through Wittershin's name on his list of suspects. Have your investigations yielded anything? He asked Charlie, who instantly forgot about her upset at Kuro's claims and started recounting all the exciting things she'd seen. After several minutes of stories about people she'd seen holding hands, broom races she'd watched, a very cool frog she'd followed, and how much nicer the winds were in spring quarter for flying than anywhere else, Arthur managed to wedge himself into a pause for breath. Did you see anyone acting strangely? He asked. Not unless you count Marie. Charlie rolled her eyes at the thought of her roommate. She's gone weird looking for that frog puke. 
Well, what about you, Arthur? Did you solve the mystery yet? No, he replied in his flat tone, which failed to express how he felt about the fact in any way. I tried to learn more about the raccoon you reported. I worked all week to get a familiar that could sniff it out, but no luck. He gestured to his familiar, which was currently in the shape of a small tortoise, very slowly learning that it didn't like the pickled cabbage that had been served any more than Arthur did. As dinner finished up, Arthur handed out new assignments to Kuro and Charlie. Charlie snatched hers up with glee, while Kuro took his reluctantly. The mystery-solving game was getting too serious for his liking. He felt gross having spied on Wittershins, even if he had learned something. It had been fun when it was just Charlie imagining absurd possibilities, but this felt too much like being a hound for Kuro's comfort. Nonetheless, he knew how much Arthur was enjoying it. He talked more about his investigation than anything else. It was the only subject he'd ever been able to discuss without being completely bulldozed by Charlie. As a favor to his friend, Kuro could play along. Or so he thought. He opened his assignment to find two words. Follow Marie. Thank you for listening to Stealing from Wizards. If you liked our show, please consider rating or reviewing on iTunes. If you want to support this podcast or just can't wait for the next chapter, the full book is available on Amazon, Kobo, and Indigo. Our theme music was written by Camille Saint-Saëns, transcribed by Franz Liszt, performed by Rebecca Verdun, and used with permission. This episode was produced by Jim Tigwell.